Welcome to Shared Ground, where we meet to explore the lands and forests of eastern Canada, Mi'kmaq, and our relationships to the rest of nature. We talk about many interconnected issues as we explore the incredible value of thriving forests, as well as methods and mindsets for interacting with and within them in mutually beneficial ways. One of the main purposes of shared ground is to hear opinions and ideas from many different people. Nothing presented here is intended as the final word. Each perspective will hopefully lead to a better understanding of a bigger picture. I am Amanda Bostland. And I am in search of ideas, practices, and attitudes that support the well-being of all species for whom these lands are home. I believe in the importance of finding shared ground, where as humans we can live well and meet our needs while contributing to thriving ecosystems and all the incredible life we share this planet with. I am grateful to be living in Mi'kma'ki, and recognize that this is the unceded and ancestral territory of the Mi'kmaq people. This episode is a compilation of some previous shared ground episodes around the theme of restoring relationship with the land. For folks wishing to hear the full episodes that the following clips came from, they can be found at sharedground.ca or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll start off in the Sebega Negadi district of Mi'kma'ki, where Mi'kmaq knowledge holder Sean Feener gives an overview of Nedigalimk. So Nedigalimk is coined a concept, but in reality, it's it's a way of living. It basically outlines how we can survive and how we live within the natural world in a sustainable way and with respect. So there's uh, four main pieces of, of Nadigalimk, pillars if you'd like to call them that, because if without one of them, it would fall to the ground. Um, so the first being respect. So we always do everything with respect of all of the beings around us. Um, the second is uh, relationship. So not only within the creation story, but within all of our um, culture, we feel that we are relations to everything around us because we all come from the same uh, the same place. We all come from Usikamu or Mother Earth. So coming from that same place, we are related to everything here. So it's a very large kind of interconnected web that we fit into. And uh, there's not really a kind of a, a you do this and this happens answer it's a it's a you do this you harvest this and we just understand that we will never know the impacts fully um, but we understand that we do have impacts and there is a relationship and we have to be mindful and respectful of that relationship the third um, pillar is responsibility so us as the youngest beings of creation and um, the only beings on Mother Earth that really can um, can create change, a, a large change that would change the entire Earth, um, we have that responsibility of protection and also of, um, of making sure that, the, that Mother Earth is healthy. Um, so that's our responsibility because we are the youngest and we are the only ones that can do it, that can create that large change that would impact all of Mother Earth. Uh, and the last pillar is reciprocity. Anything that we do has an impact on the greater collective of beings. And I guess that um, that idea of our relationship with with the natural world implies that there is a reciprocity of a give and take. So if we're taking something, you know, we should be mindful of what we're giving back. We shouldn't take too much because 
there are so many other beings that need the same thing we do. And all of this concept or way of life is, is extremely hard to explain. <laughs> but, uh, and, and I am in no way an expert on, on the, the concept or the way of life. I just try my best to, to live with mindfulness of that relationship, uh, knowing that things that I do in, in the world, the choices I make, do have repercussions, whether they be negative or positive, um, and, and changes in, in the natural world if I am to harvest or alter I'm um, the natural world. Next, we'll head up the Pijinawiska or Lahave River to hear from Rosemary Lonis, who has been running an ecological landscaping company based in Bridgewater called Helping Nature Heal for over 20 years. When we rebuild our ecological landscapes, you know, I'm always telling people this isn't just about you, the client, but all the critters that we're going to invite in as we put the right plants in the right places and as we create habitat and we create seed stock and the generosity of the plantings, right, into this new landscape that may be a lawn right now and all of a sudden we're going to turn it into a system that lives and breathes on its own, you know, and they'll say, well, why is it important if the birds come back? And it's like, we need them to pick the seeds and transport them elsewhere. Otherwise, we can never really be sustainable and self-sufficient here because really there's no, there's no real self-sufficiency. It's like we depend on everybody else and every other critter on this planet to do some form of work for us in order for us to live here. So the very smallest nematodes and worms and beetles and things are chewing up the leaf matter that we lay on the beds or the mulch or the seeds that we put down in the lawn conversion, you know, they're eating those and pooping them out somewhere else. And those minerals that get transported are the gift that the worm is giving us so that that plant can thrive right? Because now it has the mycelium and all the connectors between the plant and the soil. All of that connection and love and life can't happen without everybody playing a part of the game. And so, you know, our landscapes are more than just the superficial aesthetic appeal. It's really about building the soil, building the capacity for the land to actually support the needs that we want. You know, if we want an almond tree in our backyard, we can have that, but we definitely need all the companion plants for that tree. We need to have habitat for the bugs and the critters and the snakes and the toads and the birds and all of those other things that contribute to the health of that plant so I can actually pick the fruit off the tree and eat it. Mm -hmm. And I can't get the fruit with its best qualities and minerals and vitamins if I don't have all the other parts. Mm -hmm. Like we're not in silos, right? We're organisms living together. That's what I'm trying to build is people's awareness that this system that you live in, the place outside the box, you know, outside the house, is really the thing that's supporting us. That's how we breathe. That's how we eat and drink. And if we don't support that ecosystem that's uh, wrapped around us, then we're going to fail as humans on this planet, right? It's not about saving the earth. It's about saving our capacity to stay here. (laughs) And that is dwindling, of course, even heightens now with climate change. Mm -hmm. 
as soon as you get outside, what do you do? You breathe. And most people go, oh, fresh air, you know, and like, how is that fresh air made? It's made through the soil and through the plants and, you know, all the cycles we learned about in grade six science, you know, the carbon and nutrient and water cycles and all that stuff. And those can only operate if all the parts are connected. And so when we think of like an urban landscape, where it's mowed and it's surrounded by concrete and it has maybe a big house and very small amount of green space, how can you actually turn that into something that supports the humans? Well, we can, right? We can take those spaces and plant trees and shrubs and ground covers and put chunks of dead wood in there and maybe a hay bale or two and some brush. And, you know, we can develop those even in the smallest of spaces because it's important to do so. And so we ought to do that as much as we can because we have to breathe. And without the plants, we can't breathe. Um, I think as we learn more about climate change and we understand this process more that we're living inside this changing dynamic process over time. I think some people, it's like they maybe are listening to their intuition or that instinct. And so they are hungry for an option to the traditional methods. And whether that's you know, not having a lawn and having food instead, or it's having wood chip trails so they can go meditate somewhere or just wander in the woods, or, um, you know, their shorelines eroding faster than they were told it was going to, or the hurricane comes by and blows down all their trees, or like usually there's a significant event that happens. And I think because we've had so many young people stand up for the environment, they feel like they have to do something as well. They have to answer the call because they don't want to be ashamed that they didn't do as much as they could to help. Grow your own tomatoes. Stop mowing the corners of your property. Um, plant a few trees now and then. You know, um, deciding to maybe not fly as much or whatever. You know, everyone's decisions are going to be different. So when people call us and they say, I want ecological landscape, I'm like, okay, here's my top 20 questions. <laughs> what does that mean? Right? Because you're really trying to match their needs with what. Yeah, you can- it has to be you know, heartfelt specific. Otherwise it doesn't have any value. You got to love it first before you can protect it. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking too, it's neat how, like when you have that opportunity to be outside interacting within Mm -hmm. the rest of nature, Mm -hmm. you're fully participating within it. Is that part of it? Like definitely because all of your senses come alive. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you can put aside the worries of the day and just go and weed the garden for the sake of weeding the garden or picking the fruit or the veggies or, you know, mulching or doing whatever activity it is. It's through those activities that you heal your own psyche and all of your inside stuff. For just a moment in time, there's a bit of clarity Mm -hmm. of awareness of something bigger than our troubles and ourselves. So during bird season, we sort of pay attention of who's coming and going. And um, like we do a lot of ocean front work. So we're very aware of bank swallows, for instance. And we know that the bank swallows need three feet of eroding cliff. And they show up on a particular day in May. And then they hang out until mid-July. And then they're off going somewhere else. So we have a strategy that we get into the shoreline before if we know they're in that area or they might be in that area. 
we work before they arrive and then we don't work in that area while they're nesting and raising their young. And then we come back at the end of the season and continue our work then. Um, when we're in the woods, of course, we are always looking up, looking for nests, looking for cavity trees. Um, and mm. once we see them fledge and we see them out of the nest, then we can come back and do that work. And we encourage the subs that we use and the other forestry companies that we sub in sometimes to do the same. And of course, they pay attention to those regulations too. Mm. So it's just that greater sense of awareness of which birds are coming, who is apt to be here, what is the nesting period, um, can we get in before or after, and then can we leave stands of snags or, you know, big old dead pine trees if they're out of the risk of landing on a house or a car or something like that. So it's really an awareness and then a planning and then scheduling and making sure that all parties are aware, especially the client. And if other contractors are there, then we, you know, can put up signs or flag things areas off so that people aren't going in there. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really important to be aware of, of course. And it sounds like a bit on the surface or immediately it sounds like, oh, well, that's a bit inconvenient for you, but it's just yeah. one of those things you learn how to work around, like you would work around a bad snowstorm or any other thing you can't control, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. We can't put up signs and tell the birds not to come, right? Like they're coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did like you try that? <laughs> I haven't tried. No, but <laughs> There's this human thing of us being part of the animal world. And I think that to be responsible to that is to know that we are going to cause some harm, but... There's that huge but that we do have the capacity to make amends or to fix it or to do something in lieu of that. So I may cut down a tree for firewood at my land that's going to warm me, um, but I'm going to go plant some more trees. So I've taken the habitat from that bird or the squirrel or whoever was using that tree, but I also need to have my needs fulfilled as well. So if I'm truly kin with that squirrel, then I'm going to do my best to repair or replace as much as possible um, for that animal so that it can also continue to thrive. Because mm -hmm. he's going to take seeds away from somebody, right? The beaver's going to chew down the willow. So we're all making damages you know, and it's like, what do we do next is the important part, I think. I think being aware of that damage, like I had this light bulb moment one winter when Greg and I were at our land and we were walking on the ice on this um, beaver dammed creek that now was a lake. And so we could look down and actually see the beaver swimming underneath us, right, oh, cool. in the ice. And there's the beaver house. And you could tell that there was many babies in there. You could see the air coming out of the beaver house and stuff. And wow. um, it was really great to kind of take witness of it. And it was definitely a light bulb moment for me when, you know, at first we didn't like the beaver and he was damming weird spaces and flooding our road and causing us challenge, right? <laughs> Um, and then we we're on this beaver pond and we could see them and I could see where he had chewed down all the hardwoods and had brought all the stems over to the feeding space. And you could see all the little footprints and everything where all the babies were out and they were eating all these little twigs and stuff. And I was like, oh, he's just trying to provide for his family too, right? So he's causing damage over here. He's flooded this 
Creek and now all these um, softwoods are dying because they don't like that environment. And he's eating up all the hardwoods and they will re-sprout. And the whole purpose is to feed his babies and create enough waterway that he can teach them how to swim and do all the things that beavers do. So I was like, oh, he is just like me, right? Like he's doing damage for his own good and for his family's good, but he's also then creating a new environment that other things can thrive, like cattails and irises and the grasses, and those things will be consumed by other critters, you know, and the ripple keeps going on and on. So then I felt much more kin to the beaver, Mm -hmm. and I kind of understood that, okay, it it has to be okay in some way to cause some damage. There's a bit of damage, then there's a rebound, and there's a benefit, and then something else happens, and then there's another benefit, and it just keeps fluctuating back and forth, and we just live in this dynamic thing that nothing is ever stable, and there's never perfection. It's you do the best you can until you know better, and then you do better, right? Mm -hmm. And that is a state of dynamics as well, where we're always learning, so there's always better later, right? Yeah, I feel like, uh, yeah, the, the kind of the theme of our conversation is sort of keeps coming down to mindsets, like how do we interact with the world based on what we believe? And so I actually, I, I wrote something down from your website that really struck me, and I'm just going to read it. Um, you, you say, we envision a world where all people realize their deep interconnection with the earth and possess both the knowledge and capacity to dig deep for e- ecological solutions to remediate human impacts while creating resilient, sustainable communities. And I was wondering, like, what would allow more people to develop that capacity needed? Yeah, I feel like when we go outdoors and we are fully aware with all of the senses. We can smell it, we can see it, we can taste it, touch it, absorb it. If we can get to a clear mind of where are we now? And we realize that every breath comes because the soil and a tree created the oxygen, you know? It's like you walk out there And you can leave all the junk out of your head and the worries of the day and all the stresses and whatever. Can you just put it in a little package on the shelf for just a short while and go and sit on the ground and feel your bum in the wet soil or your toes in the beach sand or whatever it may be for you, you know? And can you just breathe quietly for a moment, just being you without your name, your job, your family connections, your drama, whatever. Can you just for a moment be you? And I think coming together as a group of concerned citizens has a ton of power. Mm -hmm. And I really encourage people to band together when they notice something that isn't appropriate, whether it's logging or a new road development or whatever is going on. We have the right to stand up for that. And I encourage everyone to do so, of course, in whatever way they can. That segment from the episode with Rosemary Lonas will lead us into hearing from Nina Newington briefly, who has been working to protect the last of the older forests in our region and to help folks understand the interconnected issues of forest protection, forestry, climate change, biodiversity loss, and human well-being. 
This little snippet from Nina will help us remember why she and others have undertaken a now province-wide campaign called Save Our Old Forests. 1958, 25% of Nova Scotia forests were over 80 years old. That percentage is down to between 1% and 5%. And that's all the forests in Nova Scotia. You know, what we know about those older forests is they're more climate resilient, they're more rich in biodiversity, they support a more complex ecosystem, which is why they're more resilient. They actually store more carbon, which the forestry industry likes to claim that the younger forests store more carbon, but that's because they're actually not looking at the soil and the fact that as much carbon is stored in the soil as in the trees. Mm-hmm. So you cut down the trees, expose the soil to the sun and elements, and the soil loses its carbon. Right. Which is also the same thing as saying it loses its organic matter, which is to say it loses its fertility mm-hmm. and its ability to buffer acidity and all sorts of other things. Next up is Rob Bright, who is a spokesperson for the Save Our Old Forests campaign, talking about some Indigenous concepts that he thinks can help us in restoring our relationship to land. When I think of Mi'kmaq people who talk about, you know, we have to think seven generations from now, every decision that we make now, we should be thinking about how that's going to impact people seven generations from now. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine if we looked at forestry from that point of view. Yeah. We would not have a forestry problem. Yeah. Uh, imagine if we looked at our waters and, and overfishing and polluting our, our lands and waters. We would not have that those problems now if we followed such a simple concept as think about what's going to happen in seven generations if we do this. The the other concept that, that Indigenous people here have, this idea that, um, you know, trees and fish and land, they're not resources for us to exploit. They're our kin. They're, they're our relations. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, we're so dependent and interdependent with them that uh, it just doesn't make sense to to take our European colonial settler views of, you know, resources are resources and they're there to be exploited and used however we feel fit. If we could just switch that mindset to, and I guess it's kind of like the, the thing to seven generations ahead, you know, if, if a tree is like one of your family, what's it going to take for you to chop that tree down? <laughs> you know, if, if, if fish and wildlife and animals are your kin, how are you going to view them in terms of resources? Like you can't really look at them that way anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if they're not resources and you think of all the other um, things that they do as part of our, our bigger family, that they help us with the air that we breathe and they help from the climate becoming too hot and they help provide homes for all our other family, <laughs> like all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. The Western idea of like humans at the top of the food chain and everything else is below us mm-hmm. versus the indigenous thing of a circle or a whole group of thing. And we're just one little dot within that yeah. circle. You know, we are really are inter- interdependent and um, we don't stand above or outside of nature. We're natural beings ourselves. And somehow we fooled ourselves into thinking we're not and we're above nature and outside of nature. And it's almost like the way we look at things is that we're divorced from nature and nature is just there 
for us to use mm-hmm. and dispose of as we yeah. see fit. And it can't be good for anyone. It can't be good for the health of the planet. It can't be good for the health of any individual in terms of their men- their mental health. Um, it's just not natural and normal. I mean, we are natural beings. Right. <laughs> because we're also divorcing ourselves from our sense of belonging in the world that we live in. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think a, a lot of us believe now a more holistic view of who we are and, and our part in, in the greater life. Um, but it's like the, the systems that we've created are just kind of gone crazy and have gotten out of control. Um, so it's like sort of like a, a realignment or a rebalancing with what actually we believe. That was from one of my conversations with Rob Bright in Guestbookwick District. And next, I'd like to include a clip from wildlife biologist Bob Bancroft talking about his relationship with the forest he's lived in for half a century. Well, I've been living in the same forest for 48 years now and basically trying to restore it. And it's been fun to see the changes because the the pioneer species that were there 48 years ago are still there, but they've become old and they have holes and they're practically condos in places because there's like 10 holes in one one old poplar. And uh, so, but I've watched them go from young trees to being relatively old pioneer species. And of course, I've interplanted a lot, of, a lot of other species. So I'm up to 52 tree species now in my 56 acres. And uh, so the forest is already evolving. And uh, where I needed to use nest boxes before because I didn't have any large trees, now there are all kinds of holes. And I've even got starlings. I mean, there's seven species of woodpeckers in there now that I've counted over a period of, of years uh, that have come to use the forest because it's one of the few old standing forests that are there. So it's really fun to see what the animals do when when you re, reconstitute the habitat. I wound up with uh, flying squirrels in in my uh, in my nest boxes. Now now nobody except for the barred owls, the bigger birds. I, there are enough holes that they don't they they're living in holes in natural trees now. And and when you have a a, a rich diversity of forest species, if there's some climate change or something, you wind up with more built-in resilience. The problem is nobody lived for 300 years. If you saw what the forest was like 300 years ago, and now everybody would be saying, what in the heck happened? But uh, we grow up with uh, rivers that are broken. We grow up with forests that are healing. Actually, that's the, what the new forest is trying to do, is heal the soil so it'll grow good trees again. And it's nature's way of reacting to, to fires or, or clear cuts. In this compilation around the theme of restoring relationship to the land, I feel it is important to include Diane Obed's voice. Diane is an Inuk woman mixed with white settler ancestry who explored decolonization and contemplative land-based studies in her doctoral research at Mount St. Vincent University. We are speaking at a place with the English name of Lori Park within the Sebeganegadi district of Mi'kma'ki. We are on the land right now where we are. And part of my colonization of being disconnected from the land disconnected me from my body. And so as I began sort of simultaneously returning to land in an intentional, heartful, ceremonial way, I started just reconnecting with my body as well. Hmm. And there's so much intelligence there. Like we are the land. We, we, are of the land. The land really brought me into more of a deeper spirituality and meditative practice. 
And it is a practice and it's not easy and it is lifelong. And without, you know, trying to sound trite and kind of oversimplify it, there is so much healing that the land offers us, not just sort of, it's, it's a balance the, that we can feel the fear of what what's happening with the planet. I've been getting a lot into the emotion, emotional aspects and wanting to learn that side of the climate crisis is how do we feel our way through. But yeah, these are things that I'm, I'm integrating as well because I'm learning them on an intellectual level, but it takes time for the, for the knowledge to become embodied and integrated and become a way of life. Mm-hmm. You know? A way of being. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I could ask you, um, f- from your own unique perspective, how to offer respect and to be accountable to the Mi'kmaq people whose land this is. And um, mm-hmm. is there anything you would offer people engaging in kind of current environmental movements? Mm. That That's something that I'm working on learning more about. Um, I think it's recognizing that and, and I think people know, are becoming more to, to know and learn about, is that these lands, um, they're not neutral sites, that they're not innocent, that they're not empty, that they weren't empty, that they were rich and are rich nations, people living here, and who are protecting the land, who have been for thousands of years, and, and doing our own work in that process of, of learning the history of the lands, the people of the lands. And also, yeah, just, just working through one's own emotional, spiritual challenges, um, doing your own, our own healing work, being in our bodies as much as we can, mm-hmm. being with what's here. Speaking with Mi'kmaq folks is really important because they have generations long knowledge of being their families and their people here, um, whose ancestors' bones are buried here and who just bring so much wisdom. Um, When you support Mi'kmaq and Indigenous peoples, we are doing what Elder Albert Marshall said, which is maintaining the ecological integrity of of the area and preserving the the local knowledge so yeah the the land back it means different things so a large part of it is allowing indigenous people to to have the ability to make decisions for the lands and waters that means um that restoration of jurisdiction of being able to make decisions um and that could look like co-management of parks of resources, of projects. Um, it also means the recognition of the, the treaty rights, the, the roles and responsibilities in those treaties. Um, and it can also be understood in spiritual and cultural terms as well. Mm. Indigenous people want to have the right to, to practice ceremony and to be connected to the land in spiritual ways as well. And also I know I'm thinking of when we spoke last fall, you were holding the question about 
how do we come into good ethical relationships with the land? Yeah, it's hard because I, I just have my own sort of personal journey of how I'm navigating that, that question of like how I'm connecting in ways that I can. Um, but it, it looks very different for everybody. And I think it's just really a matter of like a deep inner exploration and tuning in to what you're able to tap into and offer. Part of our conditioning is we, we expect and wait for an outside authority to tell us what we need to do when how can we turn that on its head and, and really tune inward with mm-hmm. our own inner knowing and yeah that's that's something really that I'm deeply exploring now mm-hmm. is trusting that that inner knowing of what I can bring what I can offer huh. yeah is there anything else you'd really like to to talk about or say no i think just really where possible learn the original place names where where we are located know that the overlaying of the map of the names the existing names are often colonial and it, and it matters to try to learn the original names and trying to understand how the the Mi'kmaq people related with their lands through their language and how their languages arose from the lands um, so where possible, learn the original place names. And for that, there's a Mi'kmaq digital place names app. Um, so yeah, so there's, there's social things that we can do. And there's, there's very personal things that we can begin to explore for ourselves. So every little small action matters. It really does. If you'd like to hear more from Diane Obed, I invite you to listen to Shared Ground Episode 7. Our last segment of this episode is from a conversation I had at the Deanery Project, located in Eskigewagik, where we explore connecting to the rest of nature after dark and come across such wonders as bioluminescence, which is an algae that releases light when it is disturbed. The Deanery Project is nestled in a forested sheltered cove of the Atlantic Ocean on the eastern shore that hosts a variety of intriguing installations, low-impact buildings, diverse workshops, projects, and events. In response to the challenges of our times, the deanery is a convening space and a living laboratory for research and for building capacity for communities. We'll head now into their Wabanagi tree nursery, where I sat with Kim Thompson and Dr. Jen McClatchy. First, you'll hear Kim set the stage a little. So science and the arts inform everything that we do at the deanery. And we use very much a two-eyed seeing lens as part of that dialogue and as part of our programming and our efforts for inclusion and development in so many ways. So we've had a number of signature events that have emerged over the years. One of those is Sea Light Skylight. And Sea Light Skylight takes place during the Perseid meteor shower in August. And it's a connection between this celestial event and um, the amazing amount of bioluminescence we have in the harbor at that time. So the skylight part is the Perseids and looking at the skies and working with the Royal Astronomical Society. They come out and do science-related programming and um, 
we invite the community in to bring their binoculars. And we sit out on the field and watch the meteors flashing by us. And there's music happening on our little stage. There's art making things. Children make lanterns. And there's a procession down to the waterfront. And then they get there's an experience around the bioluminescence that happens also. And yeah, they, we get to celebrate all of those things. So that's been a big event where we're trying to get people outdoors, connecting with nature at night, which is not something we always do is mm-hmm. in, in our century and the vastness of that space that we don't often connect with. Mm. And I think having the bioluminescence piece that's so unusual here or yeah. accessible, it's not even that it's that unusual because we do have it in abundance around Nova Scotia, but it's just... We don't always get out to see it in the same way that we don't always get out to see and experience the night skies. Right. As you do here. Yeah. Yeah, when I was here, I guess that was in October. You encouraged the group the group of us that were there. It was a small group that first night before the workshop started, and we went down and... Uh, and you gave us, it was really fun. You sent us out and you're like, here, take this paddle, take this stick, take this, like this funny array of like, you know, tools to go and splash around in the water. And yeah, and it was spectacular. I'd seen it maybe twice before in my life. And I did wonder, like, is that just because I'm not out in the night enough or not, you know, by the ocean at night enough and not stomping around on the ground or, you know, having splashing around in the water where you'd see it. But it is like, a magical, really magical experience to see those sparkly things happening under the water. Um, This is reminding me of another beautiful nighttime phenomenon, though, that I'm wondering if you've experienced here, and that is uh, phosphorescent fungi. I have seen it here. Have you seen it? Where you kick over a log and it's like beautiful green. You've seen it. I have. I've only seen it one time. I was Mm -hmm. at Windhorse Farm and I saw actually three different ones that night. I went later with a headlamp. We were on a night walk in the dark, complete dark. And I first I thought there must be fireflies in the distance, but that didn't make sense because we were in the deep woods and they weren't moving. And then I ended up going closer and realizing. And then later I went back with a headlamp to see them in light and found out that there were three different kinds. And meanwhile, I didn't even know they existed until that night. And I haven't seen them since, probably again, because I'm not out at, in the dark at night enough at the right time of year in that case. Mm-hmm. So I'm always curious if other people have seen it. And Yeah. And you saw those at Windhorse? Mm-hmm. 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 When we were on a night walk, you know, with a group of people and we were following each other in single file with, without, any, without any light, just feeling our way through the forest. A silent night walk. Yeah. There, there's some really amazing things, isn't there? And uh, some of them, most of us don't even know exist. I wanted to add here that what we refer to as Windhorse Farm is now called Azidulisk, which means that which gives you balance in the Mi'kmaq language. Two years ago, in the spirit of reconciliation, Windhorse Farm was returned through a combination of purchase and gift to the original peoples of this land. Ulnawig Education Centre an Indigenous-led organization serving Atlantic Canada, is now the caretaker of that special place. Now, we'll head back to our conversation in the Wabanagi Tree Nursery at the Deanery. I guess the part about connecting with the night sky and getting people interested in not just looking at the stars, but look like identifying which star um, 
and then being able to recognize a constellation and then realizing that that can help them navigate um, is as a part of being a kayak instructor, I teach navigation and Mm. usually we're not using the night sky to do that because it's usually daytime when we're kayaking, but um, still the concept of being able to orient yourself in space using different, different things in your environment around you is really important. Yeah, that's been huge. And I feel that learning to navigate, whether it's daytime, nighttime, and just see our place in space is huge. And we don't often do that really anymore. So mapping, personal mapping and spatial mapping, there's some huge opportunities to kind of reconnect with, with the natural world. Yeah. You know, when you get to know a species of plant or tree and you, or you see an animal you recognize and you feel kind of at home, um, you have some relationship with it and you see it um, other places that aren't, aren't your home and you, and it feels like, oh, a taste of home. Like if you saw an old friend or something walking down the street. And so I feel like that's what it would be just like a greater sense of belonging on the earth. If you were able to recognize aspects of the night sky better that wherever you went and you could see that and it would orient you in a way that that you couldn't if you didn't know that. Yeah, we've become so disenfranchised from that, those parts of our lives that, you know, have been eons parts of the human experience. And uh, so however we can access some of that connection and knowledge is, Mm. I think, really, really critical at this time. These words of Kim Thompson's will end this compilation, but if you'd like to hear more from any of the thoughtful folks featured in this episode, you can find the full episodes as well as many others at sharedground.ca or wherever you find your podcasts. As we work individually and collectively to explore and restore our relationships to the land, I wish you well and I feel grateful for your presence in our world. Thank you for listening to Shared Ground. Until next time, fellow humans. Thank you.